Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 9 of the Essential x Lapsed, where uh, there might be a little bit of ambient noise in the background throughout this episode. Uh, you see there, they're building three houses across the street from me, and, uh, well, they're taking their sweet time, so uh, it's like they got to get everything done right now, so it's quite... Quite a to-do out there. Uh, the land has been cleared since January or so. And here we sit on the uh, precipice of July, and uh, they're finally getting started. I guess maybe they realized, whoops, we've got uh, we've got houses we got to build. and uh, Or maybe they're just as slow about uh, doing house stuff as, as I am. Because, I mean, we bought this new house also in January, and we're still not moved in yet. So... Who knows? Who knows? Anyway, we are continuing our X-Men tour of the Marvel Universe here. Uh, yet another non-X-Men book here. This is Fantastic Four, number 28. And this had a July 1964 cover date. The story is called, We Have to Fight the X-Men. Written and edited by Stan Lee, pencils Jack Kirby, inks Chick Stone, letters Art Simek, colors is, uh, hmm, Somebody. I mean, there there were colors in these things. Um, I don't know. Maybe this uh, maybe this all goes back to the way I thought things were when I first started reading comics in the late '80s, early '90s. That uh, everything happened because Stan Lee did it. That was uh, that was kind of what I came in with. Any any book I picked up, it's like I never looked at the credits, you know, until uh, years later or months later, I should say. And so I figured everything was Stan Lee. Uh, he wrote them, he drew them, he colored them, he inked them, he printed them, he, uh, he drove them to the store himself. I, I don't know. Anyway, we don't know who the colorist is, is what I'm trying to say. This did have a cover price of 12 cents. We do know that. So uh, let's get on into it here. Now we open, and it's a typical afternoon for the Fantastic Four. Uh, you know, Ben, he's carrying around a giant sculpture of himself that his chick Alicia Masters sculpted for him. Um, the rest of the fam, they're reading a nebulous newspaper. Is it the Daily Bugle? Yeah, sure, why not? Um, now, just like we, how we opened uh, last episode's Strange Tales story, the X-Men are just all over the news. Now, this rag boasts the first photos of them and reveals that they recently had a successful exploit. And in fairness, and uh, I guess kudos to Stan here, the Strange Tales story did not feature any photos of the X-Men on the cover of that newspaper, though I'm pretty sure we've seen, um, we've seen pictures of them in the paper before. I'm almost positive. Anyway, uh, Reed comments on how famous the X-Men have become in such a short period of time. So uh, they're not yet feared and or hated, so how about that? Ben ain't impressed, and he asks, Who'd they ever beat? To which Sue begins reciting the X-Men's exploits. You see, the X-Men have beaten Magneto, the Space Phantom, the Blob, Quicksilver, and Scarlet Witch. Reed would add Toad and Mastermind. And I, uh, I, you know, far be it from me to correct Sue Storm here, but uh, I think she's confusing the Space Phantom with the Vanisher. Uh, the Space Phantom was actually the baddie from Avengers number two, not X-Men number two. So, um, maybe I spoke a little too soon, giving Stan the Man some continuity points. Uh, that'll, uh, that'll be a demerit, young man, and uh, further evidence as to why you should never, ever edit your own work. I mean, take it from me, I edit my own stuff, and I blame that for the fact that nobody listens to my shows, so take it for what you will. Johnny then reminds us uh, that he and Kid Cool licked Barracuda a little while back as well. Uh, we, you know, discussed that in last episode's Rip Rollickin' Tale. 
Uh, ben still ain't impressed, and he takes issue with the rest of the team engaging in hero worship for them. All the while, he's gazing at the Alicia Masters piece, the sculpture of himself. He comments that Alicia is a much better sculptor than the Puppet Master, which reminds she, him, and us that the Puppet Master is indeed Alicia's stepfather. And so we get a few pages of Woe Is Me. Now, speaking of the Puppet Master, let's uh, shift scenes to where old PM is having a meeting with another villain, the Mad Thinker. Now, this meeting is at the Thinker's request, and uh, we also see that the awesome android is here. Now, the first time I ever saw the awesome android was on a Marvel trading card. I think it was Marvel Universe Series 3. I'm guessing it was a Mad Thinker card, because I don't think the android got one. I think he was in the background of it. And I thought uh, that he had a literal butt for a head. He, he looks like he's got a butt instead of a head. Anyway, the Mad Thinker has a plan for how they can defeat the Fantastic Four together. And so, he has PM don some radiation-protective garb so he can tinker with some radioactive clay. Now you see, the Thinker has deduced that perhaps if they made a puppet of Professor X, they could use his mental abilities to sick the X-Men on the Fantastic Four. And so, the Mad Thinker describes to the Puppet Master what he thinks Professor X looks like, <clears throat> so he can get to molding a puppet plaything in his likeness. This is wild. Now, at that moment, we shift scenes over to the Flesh and Blood Charles Xavier, who our narration introduces as one of the world's most famous mutants. I, I thought we weren't supposed to know he was a mutant. I mean, this must be one of the many reasons why I was so confused when the uh, Grant Morrison Xavier as a Mutant reveal happened. Anyway, he feels someone attempting to exercise mental control over him, but he initially manages to fight it off, until the Puppet Master piles on even more radioactive clay. I'm not sure how that works, but it does. And so the puppeted prof calls for his X-Men to report into him. He gives them the orders for their next mission. They are to find, trap, and destroy the Fantastic Four. And the X-Men are quite flabbergasted and also quite stupid because they just go along with this plan without much, if any, argument. So, we jump ahead to Stan's favorite time, minutes later, where the X-Men are arriving outside the Baxter building in their, quote, late-model jetcopter. Now, Mr. Fantastic sticks his head and around six feet of neck out the window to see who's come to visit them. The X-Men are immediately welcomed inside, and we get ourselves a little bit of a meet-and-greet. Cyclops invites Reed to come with them to a nearby mesa where an alien craft had recently landed. Reed declines, which uh, seems a little bit out of character for him, but whatever. Now, you see, he's too busy working on an Air Force commission for a special jet nose cone... Now, Cyclops, upon hearing this, thinks to himself that, yeah, this is exactly what Reed was going to say. He, he, like, he knew, I, I, I don't know how he knew he would turn him down, and I don't know how that's a good thing, but okay. Uh, he then proceeds to blast the bejesus out of the nose cone with his optic blasts, and of course that leads to a fight. Now, Cyclops continuously blasts at Reed, who's able to nimbly dodge most of those blasts. Johnny flames on and gets involved and soon becomes the target of Cyclops' red-eyed fury. And so, it becomes a battle of attrition between optic blasts and bodily flame. Off to the side, Jean attempts to telekinetically lift the Thing statue, but it's too heavy, and so she drops and destroys it. This rightly ticks old Ben Grimm off, and he declares that if uh, she weren't a dame, he'd beat her ass. 
Gene responds by wrapping Benji up in some TK hoodoo to keep him off balance. Elsewhere, Sue kind of just watches this all play out alongside Angel. They're just watching. Uh, Angel then grabs her and raises her off the ground. Bobby entraps Sue's legs with an ice lasso so she can't get away. The fight continues back over with the fellas here. Uh, Mr. Fantastic rolls over to try and knock the beast off his feet. He turns into like a, a rubber ball, basically. But Hank is able to do some nimble acrobatic type stuff, and he balances on the reed ball. Reed then comes loose and sends the beast flying, though he's able to correct his trajectory in midair, bouncing off the nearby walls and landing on his feet. Beast then attempts to spear Reed, but misses due to some stretchy hoodoo. You know, he makes his his midsection kind of shift to the side a bit. And he winds up clashing with the thing, and Jean catches them both with her telekinesis. So she can't lift the thing's statue, but uh, the thing and Beast, that's perfectly fine, I guess. But then, Benji breaks free. He grabs Jean, and he lays her down over his knee as though he's about to give her a spanking. Iceman then nails the thing with some ice, encasing his entire head and both of his feet in ice cubes, basically. Cyclops continues blasting at the Fantastic Four's equipment until Reed has himself an idea. Now, this is an idea he probably should have had several pages ago, but uh, better late than never, I guess. Now, his plan is to pretend to surrender and see what the X-Men have planned for them. And so he calls off the thing and the torch, telling them to stand down. We jump to the jet copter, where the X-Men loads Sue into a steel locker, as though she's a screech. Um, Now, this way, the rest of the Fantastic Four will have no choice but to follow them to their next location, so they're using Sue as bait, even though the Fantastic Four have basically stood down. Now, back inside the Baxter building, Reed and the gang prepare to leave. Here, Ben discovers that Alicia Masters had been placed out of harm's way by the X-Men. You know, she's been put up on a high pedestal so uh, she wouldn't get hurt in the uh, fracas. Now, upon seeing this, Reed can just immediately tell that our mutant heroes aren't, you know, really bad guys. They, they actually mean no harm. And Johnny, he's not sure he's buying it. Regardless, the Fantastic Three pop into their pogo plane and shove off. Now, Stan's favorite time progression, minutes later, they arrive at a barren ridge outside the city. Maybe this is one of the places that Tony Stark sets off A-bombs. It's very barren and desolate. Now, the X-Men wave Reed and the boys down. And as they do so, Professor X gives more uh, mental instructions. You see, they're to battle the Fantastic Four again, this time subduing them for good. And so, once there are eight Fantastic feet on the ground, we rejoin our extended fight scene. Now, Ben approaches Cyclops. However, once he gets close enough to reach him, he falls into a hole in the ground. Scott realizes that this entire area has been booby-trapped, and assumes it was all the professor's doing. Now, Reed rushes to Ben's aid, but gets all tangled up in one of those hose-winder-upper things thingers that you might have on the side of your house, and that pops up out of the ground, and, and Reed is, you know, he, he's rolled up. It's kind of like a danger field or something, and uh, not the a gets no respect sort of thing, you know, like a danger room, but in a, in a field. Now, Sue has Jean trapped in an invisible force field, but releases her when she realizes the rest of her team needs help. Just then, some of those t-shirt bazookas pop up out of the ground and fire asbestos blankets at both she and Johnny. Now, this straitjackets them and extinguishes the torch's flames, except for his head. Then, the ground opens up, and the mad thinker, puppet master, and the awesome butthead rise from down below. Now, they introduce themselves to the X-Men, revealing that they are who've been giving the orders. 
Cyclops immediately recognizes them, claiming to have read about them not too long ago, and he uh, kicks himself for falling for this plot. The Puppet Master then creepily dangles the Professor Puppet in front of our heroes, inspiring the real Professor X to send a mental suggestion to the X-Men to fall asleep. And so they do. Well, not all of them. The Beast does not. He, he fights the urge long enough to launch himself at the Puppet Master, which causes him to drop the Puppet. Beast then stomps on it, breaking the baddie's control over the Professor. Now, over in that hole, the Thing pulls himself back up to ground level. He unwinds Mr. Fantastic from that hose-trap gimmick. Together, they tear the torch and the Invisible Girl from their asbestos blankets. Then, the combined forces of the X-Men and the Fantastic Four engage in combat with the awesome Butthead. And, well, their attacks are pretty futile. Now, the android takes on the characteristics of whoever it's fighting. And so, when Bobby goes in for an attack, he he himself gets encased in a block of ice. Ben then runs in and tries to lift the android, but as he does so, the baddie turns into a rocky mass itself, proving to be way too heavy for Mr. Grimm. Now, when all looks helpless, the real Professor X awakes from his stupor and exercises some weird mental pressure pointing to turn off the awesome android's artificial nervous system? Okay. Uh, Whatever the case, it slumps to the ground. Now, our baddies attempt to escape back through their underground lab with Beast hot on their trail, bouncing from wall to wall to wall. Unfortunately, he's a little bit too slow. Now, the Thinker and the Master load onto an underground jet plane and escape via an opening in a nearby cliff. Gotta say, some weird topography the uh, Marvel suburbs have, don't they? Anyway, this takes us to our ending. The X-Men and Fantastic Four shake hands and part as friends. And, just like the end of every early Marvel team-up, they all hope that one day they'll work together on the same side. And that is where we leave it. Next time out, believe it or not, we're getting an actual issue of X-Men. Just one, though. Because then we're going back into guest spot territory. I mean, it's funny, in the 90s, people would always complain that the X-Men popped up everywhere. And uh, I, I guess it wasn't anything new under the sun, because back in 1964, they were... Basically everywhere, too. So, let's talk about this issue here. I, I, you know, I might be going out on a limb here, but if we're going back to the early to mid-60s Marvel Universe, this might be, like, maybe the most important issue featuring the X-Men to this point. Uh, the Fantastic Four were a flagship title of, uh, of the Marvel line here, and I might assume that this, this issue could be the first time that a lot of people saw the X-Men. So really good exposure for the team here. I gotta assume that Fantastic Four was probably a far better selling book than the X-Men. And, you know, it's one of those things you hear about the uh, the books of old, you know, the books of the Silver Age and even into the Bronze Age. The higher the number was on the issue, the you know, the more likely someone would buy it because it had a proven track record, right? If you saw a book with a number one on it, well, you weren't really so sure about it. But if you saw a book with... I mean, like, this one's a 28, or, you know, into the hundreds, you're, you might have a little bit more confidence in in the book here, uh, insofar as lasting power and uh, legitimacy. It's one of those very weird things that is totally flipped from, uh, you know, the golden and silver ages of comics to today. I mean, you'd even hear stories of uh, new books getting launched with a triple-digit number just to trick people into thinking that it had this long pedigree and uh, and lasting power. So 
I think having the X-Men show up in this uh, more tenured, not by much, but a more tenured Marvel book lent them a bit of uh, credibility and legitimacy. And like I said, I'm sure Fantastic Four was uh, more widely circulated than than the X-Men. It was a monthly book and was something of a tastemaker for the early Marvel uh, mags here. I mean, even if we go back to Spider-Man number one, Spider-Man number one's cover has the Fantastic Four on it, which I gotta imagine lent... And lent credibility to this brand new title. You know, going into the '80s, there was a uh, always that that like trend where in Marvel books, if you made it to a second issue, Spider-Man would be on the cover, and in DC, if you made it to a second issue, Superman would be on the cover. It was kind of the the anointment, you know, of a, of a new character or a new franchise or just a new property or IP, I suppose, where it would just say, you know, this is this is something to check out. So yes, that's my roundabout way of saying uh, I think this issue lent a great amount of credibility to the X-Men and uh, legitimized them, perhaps to a brand new audience in uh, in readers of the Fantastic Four. So that's a good thing. That's a very good thing. Now, as for the story, it was also pretty good. I mean, it's hard to look back at a story like this in current year as anything special, but as we've been saying throughout our little, you know, uh, seminal Marvel Universe tour, this was all new back then. So having the angel cross paths with Iron Man was was brand new. Iceman and the Human Torch, that's not something that had been done a million times. Here, the X-Men and Fantastic Four, this is the first time they're meeting. So that's, that's pretty important, I think. And it's uh, not really played out. Of course, it does have the old uh, Marvel manner of hero versus hero, where there's a little bit of a, maybe not so much of a misunderstanding here, more of a mental control, but uh, leading to a misunderstanding. Which gets us into a fight until the, the heroes realize that they're all on the same side And then they team up to take down a common foe In current year, that's old hat Something we've seen many, many, many times Probably too many times Here, though, again, it's brand new And it also provides an opportunity for every character to, to kind of show their stuff, right? In, a, uh, in an effective way, but in a way that doesn't cause... Too much damage because it's hero-on-hero violence. So we get to see what Cyclops can do, right? We see him blast the hell out of stuff. We see Jean use her telekinesis. We see Bobby do his thing. Beast is bouncing all over the place. Angel has wings, so he can fly. We also get to see the Fantastic Four do all their stuff. So I guess in the odd event that you are someone who came in to read the X-Men and never read a Fantastic Four book before, well, this serves as a pretty good introduction to them as well. We get to see some classic Fantastic Four villains here. We get to see the X-Men fight some people that aren't Magneto. So that's a good thing, right? Um, and in case you missed Magneto, he will, of course, be back uh, next episode. And, and the rest of the Brotherhood will be as well. It's uh, We just can't shake them. They will be here for a little while until the stranger comes and, and puts them somewhere else for a minute. But uh, it's nice to see the X-Men kind of out of their element. I mean, this is speaking in hindsight, of course. Uh it's not often we get to see them, you know, engage in battle with non-ex-villains. So it's pretty neat to see them facing off against the Puppet Master and the Mad Thinker, uh, despite the fact that they're not some of my favorite villains by a, you know, by a long stretch. But uh, it's still something of a novelty in hindsight. Because, uh, like I said, we just don't get to see that all that often. And I mean, especially nowadays, uh, in our current Krakoan books here, all the bad guys are... Maybe not so much good guys, but they're aligned with good guys. So maybe we can have uh, the X-Men face off with the Puppet Master again. <laughs> Why not, right? It'll be better than uh, 
nameless Russians and, and people in suits and uh, the Skate 800th alien invasion. I gotta mention that I also appreciate how uh, continuity is used here. I mean, continuity is... Yeah, it's, it's, it, there isn't much continuity. I mean, this is all brand new properties, relatively speaking. But it's still nice to have Johnny be like, Hey, you know, uh, me and Iceman got together and beat up the Barracuda. And actually, this episode was supposed to be, uh, or this issue was supposed to be last episode's show until I read that panel and realized, oh wow, there was another X-Men appearance in, uh, in a Marvel book. So I had to go dig out a different book so I can cover the Iceman and Human Torch uh, team-up from Strange Tales. So thank goodness for editorial footnotes and continuity. Both things that I love a lot and uh, things that made me not miss something, right? Uh, otherwise it would be like... 30 episodes from now, it's like, oh yeah, by the way, I missed this. Which, as someone trying to go through, like, as many of the notable appearances as possible would really uh, cause me to lose a little bit of sleep, which uh, probably says a whole lot more about me than uh, than I really should be admitting on the air here. I'm a little bit compulsive, I suppose. But uh, I think that's about all I have to say about this story. It was a fun one. It was definitely a fun one. It was an important one. It was the first meeting between the X-Men and the Fantastic Four, which uh, is a pretty major happening for, uh, you know, a, a relatively new property. So I'm very happy we covered this one. I hope you guys are as well. And just like I said um, a few episodes ago, if I'm coming up on a uh, notable X-Men appearance in a non-X-Men book, please let me know. Because I'm doing as much research as I possibly can. I'm digging through the old indexes to see what, like, next appearances are. I'm digging through the uh, Marvel Wiki month by month, week by week from back in 1964, trying to make sure we don't miss anything. And uh, just in case I do, please feel free to reach out to me and uh, and let me know. Uh, further, I, I did pose a question a few episodes back about... Uh, inserts, retcons, things like uh, X-Men First Class, uh, X-Men Hidden Years. Are those things you'd like to hear me discuss on the show? Are those things you feel are vital and, uh, I suppose, in canon uh, to an extent? Because I'm, I'm totally fine doing basically whatever, right? So uh, let me know, and uh, we will uh, get to planning. And, um, you know, it's been a long time since I've extended an open invite to uh, come on the program and talk about some X-Men stuff with me. So if there are any, you know, upcoming Silver Age stories you'd like to uh, be on the air to discuss, please feel free to hit me up and uh, we will uh, work something out there. Now, speaking of which, you can get a hold of me several different ways on the internet. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, on Instagram at 90sXmen. You can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, or you can call into the X-Lapsed hotline at 623-396-JERK. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisoninfiniteearths.com. You can join us on Facebook. Our little group is 90sXmen. And finally, uh, for the archives and all the Chris and Reggie comic commentary stuff, you can head to chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Available anywhere you find noise. And uh, if, while you're there, you like what you hear, or at least appreciate the effort that goes into it each and every day, I would love for you to share the show, spread the word, do me, do me that kindness. <laughs> Tell folks that this show, you know, is. <laughs> it exists, and maybe they'll dig it. Or maybe they won't. I mean, we'll hope for the best. So if you wouldn't mind spreading the word, I would really, really appreciate it. Uh, speaking of appreciation, it means so much to me that you'd allow me to be part of your day today. So thank you all so, so much. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.